0: confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a this week community news podcast series devoted to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel, let's get right to it. Our guest is a U.S. Navy veteran who served as a radioman in Operation Desert Storm aboard the USS Samuel Gompers. Since retirement, she has served as an advocate for veterans. She's involved with numerous organizations, among them Women Veterans Rock, Women Veterans Rock Civic Leadership Institute, President and Liaison for the State of Ohio Women Veterans Rock National Leadership Team, and Ohio Veterans Hall of Fame Executive Committee. Decorations include the National Defense Service Medal, Overseas Service Ribbon, Navy Good Conduct Medal, Sea Service Deployment Ribbon, Kuwait Liberation Medals for Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, Southwest Asia Service Medal with Bronze Star, Navy Unit Commendation Medal, Joint Service Achievement Medal, Navy Achievement Medal, Joint Services Commendation Medal, Military Outstanding Volunteer Service Medal, Navy Marine Corps Overseas Service Ribbon, Global War on Terrorism Service Medal, and Navy Meritorious Unit Commendation. Oh, and she was inducted into the, with the Class of 2018 into the Ohio Department of Veterans Services, Ohio Veterans Hall of Fame, from Columbus, Ohio, Lieutenant and Dr. Dana Robinson-Street. Welcome to Marching Orders.
1: Thank you. I'm honored to be here.
0: Yeah, such a long list of uh, things that you've accomplished. I'm just stumbling all over myself trying to get it all out. You're very impressive here. Let's start right with the the Hall of Fame induction. How special was that moment, Dana, and, and when you first learned that you would be in the 2018 class?
1: Being inducted into the Hall of Fame is an honor, it's hard to convey in words how special it is to be honored for those things that you would do without any recognition. Um, as a veteran, I am so honored to serve veterans. I have already, I have stated that I would serve veterans for the rest of my life. And to be inducted into the Hall of Fame for, to, and acknowledged for those things that I've done, for me, is just such an honor and a privilege.
0: And let's get to know you a little, your family, your job as a clinic manager, inclination, that sort of thing. Tell us a little bit about them.
1: So I was born to a father who was born in 1912 and a mom who was born in 1942. I'm from a blended family of 13 children, nine girls and four boys. Um, I grew up in the in Chicago, Illinois, which was very interesting because um, coming from a family of so many sisters it makes it that much better to be the youngest girl Mm. and honestly I wouldn't change that position for anything in the world if I had to be reincarnated I would always come back as the youngest girl Um, but I came from a very supportive family and um, when I decided to join the Navy my father was very apprehensive he didn't want me to join I had uncles who had served, I had two sisters that had served, but um, for me, he really did not want me to join the military. Um, he was worried about some of the things that I may experience. Mm.
0: And your uncles, uh, they were all in the army as your sisters were in the army and your uncles were all in Vietnam, were, did they play a big role in your decision to join?
1: Um, knowing that they had served they didn't honestly play a huge role in my decision to join it was something that i knew they had done and um something that i was willing to experience
0: now their army and your navy what would they think of you um switching teams here and going with the navy <laughs>
1: They thought that I was in the easier branch of service.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you have uh, three children as well. Are, are they any of them interested in military?
1: My sons are interested in um, attending school and um, working. Uh, they would not be opposed to joining the military, but um, they we have become such a cohesive family unit as a result of my military experience that they don't mind being closer to mom.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my son had uh, this, sort of the same thoughts going back and forth. He's visited I don't know how many recruiting offices and then just you know, just wasn't quite there. And you joined the Navy as an enlisted and commissioned officer in 1988. You mentioned in a questionnaire I sent that your reason for joining was because you wanted a job that you couldn't quit. Dana, is, I look at all the studies you've completed, granted many of them after joining the Navy, but... I'm not sure how the word quit could even be in your vocabulary. You have more academic abbreviations before and after your name than almost anyone I know. When you're involved in so many things. Were you, were you just a, a different Dana then? Or were you unaware of what you were able to accomplish? What was going on through your mind? What would make you think that... How would quit even be in your vocabulary at that point?
1: I, I started school when I was three years old. And my all of my high school years... I went to school all year round so when I graduated I wasn't ready to go to return to school Um, my family gave me a choice of go to school or get a job (laughs) those were my options Mm. Um, I didn't want to go to school so I started working but what I noticed was that I would start jobs and then find a reason that I didn't like them and stop I didn't want my life to be a succession of starting and stopping so i decided to join the navy and um i figured i would find a job that i couldn't quit
0: But, but once i
1: got there i didn't want to
0: wow what was basic training like for you and were there any particular incidents or circumstances comedic moments or difficulties that come to mind during basic
1: basic training was interesting um i joined in 1988 march 16 1988 And um, when I joined the military, when I joined the Navy, there weren't a lot of women. So we actually had to wait two weeks until we had enough women in the basic training class to begin boot camp. Mm. My drill instructor looked like Tim Conway. (laughs) (laughs) And I was a big Carol Burnett fan. So when he would yell at me. I would just think of Tim Conway and uh, the little
0: stutter w- steps he'd take. Yes.
1: <laughs> and Mrs. Wiggins, or yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so it would make me laugh, and that was really hard for me.
0: <laughs> was he hard on everybody? Was he was he easy to get along with? What kind of leader was he?
1: So, um, when back when I joined in the eighties, and, and honestly, it's probably still the same now. It's hard as a young person to adjust to having strangers tell you what to do and and, and, um, educate you regarding all of the requirements of what it's like or the things that you will need to know to be in the military and survive the military. Um, You're also missing your family. So I believe they were tough, but they also did it with compassion and they really cared about what they were doing and they cared about us as military members.
0: And you pointed out that it took time to even actually get into basic because you had to wait on enough females to enter the program. Along with that, was the attrition rate was the dropout weight rate fairly high, or was it? Did most people
1: seem to stick with it? Um, I think it's kind of a mixture. We had some people that um, when we went to basic training, I can remember one one young lady. She didn't want to cut her hair. Uh, she said she was Italian and her family heritage was that they would grow their hair very long and hers was waist length. Mm. We were required to cut our hair and, um, it was something that she would not do. And so she ended up leaving basic training as a result of that. Um, a lot of, uh, several of the people that I joined with, they stayed for a few years or four years or whatever their minimum was. And we had some that stayed a little longer and then, um, I don't think there were many like me that stayed almost 26 years.
0: Yes, that's, that's quite a tenure. You're listening to Marching Orders. Let's talk about the Gulf War. This is our first major foreign crisis since the Cold War. And you had joined the Navy just a couple of years prior. And I get it. You join the military. You understand there's always a risk that you could be involved in conflict. But when did it become really you, Dana, that you might actually be in this war or a war scenario?
1: The day after I arrived, I had just moved from Okinawa, Japan, to Alameda, California, and I learned that we were deploying to Desert Storm. On the way there, honestly, I I really didn't know what to expect or what we would be facing. Um, So you heard about the tragedies of war. I had family members that had been to war in Vietnam. So honestly, I was very afraid. I was very afraid, and... The thought that I left home against my father's wishes was really something that was becoming real to me, and um, and I worried and I wondered if we would come back.
0: Had you talked to him around this time that you were being deployed? What were his? Did he say anything to you about it?
1: So um, I joined in March. In January of the very next year. I had to go home on emergency leave. My father had cancer, Mm. and I didn't know it. And um, he actually passed away at my first duty station.
0: You were aboard the USS Samuel Gompers. Now, this is one of the first ships in the Navy's fleet to take women aboard as crew members in the late 1970s. What was that ship like, Dana, and and describe the first time you saw it and what it was like to board and then sail across the ocean on it?
1: The first time I saw the USS Samuel Gompers, I was amazed. It was this huge ship and um, because of my first duty station where we had our we had single-person rooms and our own TVs and things like that I actually came with all this luggage thinking that you know I'd have a nice amount of space for myself um, they had to call a working party <laughs> which is where they bring extra people to help you bring your things on board um, once I was on the ship It was interesting to me that a lot of the males had never really worked with very many females. And so I thought of them kind of of, as cavemen (laughs) Mm -hmm. and didn't really understand, like, why they didn't know what it was like to work with a woman because, like, we were women on Earth. (laughs) But um, it was it wasn't a bad place to be. The ship shipboard life is interesting um, because you you develop a different kind of camaraderie than you would other places. You don't really have very many places you can go outside of uh, or when the ship is sailing. So um, I met a lot of friends. Um, I would actually go to the top of the ship at nighttime and just lay underneath the stars and um, sometimes fall asleep. Hmm. It was very relaxing. Um, we worked what was called a port and starboard, meaning that you worked a 12 on and a 12 off shift. And so it was, it was similar to just going to work. But the difference was that when you were off work, you were still on board ship.
0: Along with that, was there ever, I guess, a sense of, I don't know, being just being stuck there, sort of claustrophobia, I guess, or there's no way to get out, or did you have to try to comfort any of your your fellow sailors on any of that?
1: So I think it was most challenging when we would have what's called a fast cruise. A fast cruise means that the ship is sitting at port, but you have to pretend like you're working and that you're out to sea. Mm -hmm. And so that is particularly challenging because you can see all of the things that you'd like to access, but you can't access them. And so, um, so sometimes it was, you had to comfort people, especially when we were leaving, because they were leaving their families, they were leaving mm-hmm. their children, and, um, and no one wants to be gone for six months or nine months if they can help it. Mm-hmm.
0: They keep plenty of drama mean on board and that kind of thing for a seasickness. <laughs> did you have to deal with seasickness?
1: I did initially. Uh, we'd just go down to medical <laughs> and they would help us out.
0: Gompers sunk in the Atlantic in 2003 as part of a fleet training exercise. Any thoughts or emotions when you knew that was going to happen or when it did happen?
1: Yeah, um, being on board the USS Samuel Gompers was very special for me. It was my first ship, and, um, and when they sunk it, I felt like a huge part of history was kind of going away. Yeah, and then um, I guess if you think of like the ceremonial aspect of a ship being sunk at sea— Right. So. So, yeah, I felt like that was a part of my past that I would never be able to access. And uh, yeah. And I really hated that that happened.
0: I'd seen it was a a 1991 video. Actually, it was the USS Gumpers and it was a ceremony called Crossing the Line. It's an initiation rate that commemorates a sailor's first crossing of the equator. Did you get to participate in one of the Crossing the Line events? And you called it something, uh, what was the the term you called it? A Wog Dog. Wog Dog. Did you get to participate in Wog Dog?
1: <laughs> well, it's becoming a shellback. And before you become a shellback, you're actually a Wog Dog. So, yes, I was a Wog Dog.
0: <laughs> what was that and, like? What, what was the whole ceremony about?
1: Uh, so, the ceremony was it was something you did to commemorate crossing the equator but it was it was something that um that you got to choose if you wanted to do it or not um and they had all of this like i guess they had all of this ceremonial things that they would do um I don't know that I can give out all the secrets, so I'm kind of trying to walk around what we did. Oh, come you're on,
0: not, spill the beans here, Dana. You're, no, I, I you're
1: not it. supposed to tell, I'm sorry.
0: You're listening to marching orders with the very secret of Dana Robinson's tree,
1: <laughs> the polywog who is now a shellback.
0: You <laughs> <laughs> had roles as a radium and IT person. What did those rules involve, just generally speaking?
1: Um. So those rules and the rules or what we did was we communicated and we provided communication services um, for all forms of the Navy um, and so those rules were that you went to work and you you did the things that you were supposed to do but um, that you maintained um, that you maintained the information that you were what you were doing about what you were doing
0: and you were obviously, you're in a danger zone there. Was there ever a time or incident that you thought, you know, this this doesn't look very good, this looks kind of scary, or maybe a situation where enemy combatants were approaching, or just any kind of scary times that you had your doubts that you are going to get through it?
1: Once, uh, when I was attending a school, there was a person who had gained access to the building, and... Um, And he was trying to find out information regarding what we did Mm. and our jobs. And so what I did was I made sure that I notified the security managers and and notified them of this person and their questions. So that was the, I guess that was the first thing that made me realize kind of how, how important what we were doing was.
0: And I'd, I'd interviewed Angela Belt. She's another Desert Storm veteran. And she was talking about the way women were viewed in Afghanistan. They were frowned upon when women were driving, and Angela drove quite a bit. Did you have to deal with that? You had mentioned to me earlier that there were um, just some certain rules that you had to abide by when leaving the ship.
1: Yes. So when we left the ship, um, Regardless of how warm it was, we had to make sure that we had on long-sleeved shirts, long pants, um, where we didn't expose our bodies. Um, the other thing was, is that being in the military as a woman was not something that was viewed as a good thing in a place where women were, in my opinion, not given as many freedoms as everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, we were there during Ramadan, and during Ramadan, we had to make sure that we were back at the ship at a certain time um, and that we weren't off base. You also had to be careful of, of where you went, and, um, and, me, and we had to make sure that we always had someone with us.
0: Yeah, buddy system, I imagine, was really important then. Absolutely. And how long were you overseas, Dana.
1: Um, I was overseas several times. I lived in Japan almost eleven years. I was um, I lived in Guam, which is a territory of the United States, but it felt like it was overseas. And um, and when my ship deployed to the Gulf,
0: was it difficult to get acclimated to all those different areas you were in? What was it like, for example, going to Japan
1: as a six foot tall woman? <laughs> it was. It, Japanese people are very, very, very friendly. Um, it was. Different because I didn't speak the language, I couldn't read the signs, and um, I didn't know anyone. Right, my first, my very first duty station was Okinawa, Japan. So, um, so for me, the acclamation of leaving my family and knowing that I was so far away uh, was a little challenging, but it was also very interesting to get to learn about living in a foreign country and meeting new friends and and developing a support system in the military. I'm a big believer that when we leave our families and friends to join the military, we leave all of those things that are familiar to us, all of those things that are important to us at a very young age, and we build these pseudo-families within the military system. And those pseudo-families, honestly, are what carry us through the remainder of our careers.
0: Did you get to stay with some of your... uh your shipmates or your fellow sailors from beginning to end or uh, did you get to stay with any of them throughout your, your time or at least a large part of your time?
1: No, I didn't. So it had to be Um,
0: difficult leaving them. I'm sure because you you pointed out that it's sort of a pseudo family. That's gotta be a difficult thing to do. I imagine.
1: It is. um, After you, once you've joined the military, you, you become accustomed to people coming, and going from your life and um and although it is hard, and you missed having them around, you can still call them and things like that. It just becomes a way of life for us, and um yeah, and because it's a part of being in the military, I feel that most people adapt to that very well. Um, but I also believe that that fact is what causes us challenges once we leave the military.
0: What was Guam like that you had mentioned? Yeah, it is a U.S. territory, but that seemed foreign. What was it like being there?
1: It was a small island. Um, I think I would develop cabin fever being on Guam more than I would being on a ship. Hmm. Because I knew the ship was actually coming back to the States, whereas Guam was just the island. Um, I had two children there. So, of course, it's special for me mm-hmm. for that reason, but it's very tropical. Um, it's very beautiful, and, um, but it's, it's small. I was actually there for the earthquake. Oh, long. really? I was. I think it was a 8.1 or oh yeah 7.1. It was a pretty big one. It was larger than the one in California.
0: Did you have to see a lot of the devastation and react to any of it?
1: I had never been in an earthquake before when that occurred so honestly i didn't know what was happening um my ex-husband and i we had company and i said boy it seems like things are moving (laughs) so um we didn't have a lot of devastation i think maybe one person passed away Hmm. um an elderly person and they were non-military uh the island um the way it was built it was able to sustain the earthquakes and so uh, it was just very interesting, the fact that we had such a large one, and knowing that I was there.
0: It is really weird to be in one. I was in California back in the early 90s, and there was a 4.5 earthquake, followed by a 4.3 on, a, on the Richter scale. It was a, an aftershock. And I remember at the time, the uh, my friend's son, who was just a, a really crazy little kid i thought he was just in there just shaking my bed right and i'm yelling i'm yelling at him ty stop shaking the bed and then i look out and i can hear ty laughing in the middle of the room and i'm thinking okay ty's not shaking my bed right and then uh, you look out the window and you can see all the buildings shaking it's it's really bizarre dana what about when you finally got to come home for the for good you didn't have to go back over what was that feeling like? Was it, I'm sure it was a sense of, of awe, but at the same time, you know, you're you leaving some of your shipmates and, and fellow sailors. What was that like?
1: Transitioning from the military for me was very hard. Um, as military members, we are, we are less than 1% of society. And when we leave the military and we're returned back to the 99% of people who haven't served— we're strangers, right? We're strangers in a familiar land, which is, um, it's a strange feeling. It's a strange feeling because one, you're very happy to be with those you love and those you missed and and those that you've just had all these thoughts about what life was like for them while you were gone. But then for you, you feel out of place. And so that's pretty hard.
0: And a big part of your life now, it's all about being an advocate for veterans. And this is usually the final thing I ask about on this podcast, but it's a continuing task and endeavor for you. And I know you get emotional about it because you care so deeply about it. You knew a military member with survivor's guilt who had survived the death of multiple members of his platoon uh, during one deployment. He lost a fellow military member who was a father figure to him during his next deployment. And then had his femoral artery severed during his third. And then what would have been his replacement died. Just tell us a little bit about him, Dana, and how his example affected you personally and and led to your decision to become an advocate for veterans.
1: So this gentleman um, was one of the most amazing people that I've met. After suffering all the losses, but he felt that He was the cause, right? He was there when his platoon passed. He was there when the member that was like a father to him passed away. He had to leave to heal from the severing of his femoral artery, and the other person passed away. So in his mind, it was his fault that all of these deaths occurred, but the reality was is that he was the survivor. And he had so much to be thankful for. But in his mind, it was very hard for him to be thankful. He is an example of an everyday veteran. He is an example of what we do as military members. When we raise our hands to say we will support and defend the Constitution, we mean that we will support and defend it with every aspect of us. We leave our children behind. We leave our family members behind, our spouses behind, our history. We leave it behind to support and defend this country. And so that is why, that is what inspires me every single day. That is what inspires me to know that I served and that was what inspired me to stay, right? I, did, I wanted a job that I couldn't quit. Um, and I I didn't want to quit because I was truly serving with heroes. Now we didn't have S's on our chests, we didn't have Batman wings or Superwoman wings, right? But we were the people that I served with were some of the greatest people that you'll ever meet in this world. And and those are the same people that are walking around Columbus, Ohio in the state of Ohio, and all the different states across this nation. They are people that will sacrifice everything for us and for one another and for those that we don't even know. So for me, advocating for veterans just means that I'm continuing to give back to those that I know are sacrificing their lives for us in this country. Um, It bothers me. And it, it saddens me to know that after serving, some veterans are faced with so many tragedies like suicide, homelessness, unemployment. And I definitely feel that as a society, we have to find a way to make sure that we are doing those things that for those who have risked the most. And so I, I still try to do my part, yeah.
0: Well, what about yourself, even? Um, talk about your own experiences, just adjusting to civilian life. You've, you've struggled quite a bit, too.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, all of my friends are military. To know that um, when I, so I, I joined in 88 as an enlisted member of Radioman, and then in 2005, I commissioned as a naval officer. Um, and when I commissioned, I was a, a primary care provider and to know that I performed physicals on people and cleared them to deploy, they never came back. That's really hard. But because of my travels, because of the, the fact that every few years I had to move from one place to another, then you don't really develop those relationships that you would have those long-term ones with neighbors that you can just knock on their doors and visit them and know them and and know their children you don't have that history um i don't have the same history as my high school friends right uh and that is very 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 difficult it's very challenging it's to this day right now and i've been retired now for almost six years my friends are all military members And so it creates this isolation in society that I don't think a person would have had they spent so, had they not spent so many years moving around. Now, that's not to say that moving from place to place was a horrible experience. It's not to say that I didn't enjoy or that I don't have good memories of the places that I've been. I say those things to say that, um, The reason why I believe, or my theory, is that the instability causes us to have challenges when we finally get to a place to where we don't have to move as often.
0: I think about some of the veterans who have served multiple tours, and um, we talked about it before we started recording here. You could have somebody, you could have a father who, he's deployed, he becomes a warrior, he comes back to America, and he's trying to be a dad gets redeployed he 's trying to be a warrior again, and he comes back to America and he's trying to be a dad again i'm sure you've dealt with numerous veterans who have really struggled with that kind of thing
1: absolutely for one thing, you have patience you have people that are are single parents right and when it's time to deploy, you still have to deploy and so if you would think about those children, they are growing up in a home where their parent isn't present but they have a present they have a parent the 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 children or the family the spouses of members who military members who deploy then that parent that's present becomes the mother and the father right just as you would in any single parent household but the difference is is that the child and the spouse knows that there is another person for the person, for the deployed military member that's returning, they have to reacclimate themselves to being in the family, right? And not having this uh, maybe a heightened alert that you would if you're deployed, or maybe not feeling like you're an absent person, even though you're serving your country. So, yes, definitely, I I definitely know the challenges um, that we face because of the fact that we're serving our country, um, and it is it is hard, it is hard, um, but we also know that we're out there fighting for the greater good, and so that's what helps us through. The other thing, I, I feel that we also have to sort of disassociate ourselves from our feelings because those feelings and being very present in in what you are truly experiencing emotionally can make you more vulnerable and possibly put you in a place that may be a little dangerous for you, especially if you're deployed in an area where, um, where we're at war or a, an area like Afghanistan. Uh, people who deploy, um, they... They separate themselves from their emotions. And when we get to call home or when we talk to family members, then, of course, we're more present. But once you are not in that, once you're not experiencing that, then you, you turn it off and you return back to who you are as a military member.
0: One of the other things we talked about as well before we started recording was the effect on children. So it's not just the parent. It's not just the mom going back and forth or the dad going back and forth, the child is the one affected just as much, if not more.
1: Yes, so um, I'm divorced. And um, my ex-husband and I, we have three sons. When we divorced, my duty station or my next duty station was um, Florida, right? Which may not be very uncommon for, uh, for people who are from divorced family families. But after we left Florida, we went back to Okinawa, Japan. So now my sons were in a place where they couldn't see their father because we were overseas. Um, and um, the moving for children who are part of military families is very challenging for them. So. Uh, one thing that I recommend is that as we focus on veterans, we also focus on the children of veterans. Um, the children of veterans are faced with some of the challenges that veterans are faced with. They, um, they don't have the ability to go back to those places where they grew up, or if they could go there, then um, they really wouldn't know anyone, right? Um, they have friends that, may, that are there every few years and sometimes they know family members who never return. And so all of those things that affect us as military members also affect our children. And so we also need to make sure that we create programs and that we, we focus on the children of veterans because they, too, are faced with challenges.
0: You're listening to Marching Orders since retiring from the Navy, you've devoted yourself to helping improve the lives of veterans. Let's just go through a, a few of them here um, and tell me a little bit about each one. Scooters for Veterans campaign, what is that and uh, what do you do with it?
1: So my Scooters for Veterans campaign, I worked with a Purple Heart recipient from the state of Pennsylvania. and. Um, and he would provide me with scooters. I would drive there and get them, and then come back and find mobility impaired veterans to give them to. Since then, I've been contacted from other states uh, regarding scooters and equipment that is available for veterans, and, um, and I find veterans to give it to. There's so many of us that have needs, um, and we may not have the resources and so i devote myself to trying to find a way to one ensure that we have access to the benefits that are available to us two we have access to things that may help us thrive in society and three make sure that we have access to those things that we deserve because we've fought for our country
0: women veterans rock and all the various related organizations tell me about that
1: the women veterans rock is a coalition of women veterans organization and women advocacy Supporting women veterans and military families. We support us in the areas of housing, employment, education, financial st- stability, and health and wellness. Our priority is preparing today's military women for public leadership, civic leadership, business, and nonprofit leadership.
0: Dog Tag Inc.
1: DogTag Inc. is a nonprofit organization that teaches disabled veterans, all aspects of running a business. And um, so they have a civic leadership institute. They have a nonprofit organization where a a service-disabled veteran can go and learn all aspects of running a business while earning a certificate from the executive MBA program of Georgetown free of charge.
0: You noted that Ohio has more than 800,000 veterans, but the Veterans Home has only enough beds for 888. That's about one-tenth of one percent. You have an idea for something. What's your idea that you're pursuing?
1: So I would like to bring a veterans home to the greater Columbus area. Um, There are currently two veterans homes in the state of Ohio. One that was built in 1888 in Sandusky, Ohio, um, that houses approximately 762 service members. And then there is the veterans home in Georgetown, which was built 115 years later, and houses approximately or less than 200 um, service members. They are both more than two hours away from the greater Columbus area. The greater Columbus area has the third largest population of veterans. Um, Together, those two homes house less than one-tenth of one percent of veterans. In the state of Ohio, there's 867,000 of us. 60% of us are greater than the age of 60. So we're at a time where there is a need. And I'm a big believer that when we bring veterans back to veterans, we have the ability to thrive. And um, the way to find out if that's true, all you have to do is go into any VA in any state and just look around, and you will see veterans that are sitting there talking to one another, having lunch with one another, and just spending time with one another. And the only thing they have in common is the fact that they are veterans. They may not have served together, they may not have known one another prior to meeting each other at the VA. I can walk into any grocery store or gas station, and if there's a veteran there and I identify that I'm a veteran, it's almost like an instant friendship. It has been proven that veterans who live in veterans' homes' lives are improved because they give them veteran-centered care. It has been proven that sometimes our lives are extended. But most of all, it gives us the opportunity to not be isolated in this great big world. I use this gray, uh, this Blue House analogy, and um, I compare us as veterans to gray houses. Now, of course, I'm biased because... I was in the Navy, so we have to have blue and gray, right? Um, But I say that we are the blue house on the block with more than 99 gray houses. The gray houses believe that we should just be gray. Why won't they just paint themselves gray? But as blue houses, we fought for our country. And we're okay with being blue. But people don't understand us because we're blue houses. So if we take veterans and bring them back to veterans, then they can talk about their experiences to people who know what it means. They can talk about their lives when they were in the military to people who have an understanding. And most of all, at the most crucial part of our lives, in the most crucial moments, we would have the opportunity to be comfortable in a place where we find comfort. So, for me, veterans' homes are very important, and I know that for veterans, they're equally as important.
0: So, what's the status of your plan here?
1: <laughs> I'm just still advocating for it. Still advocating for it. <laughs> I don't have any. I don't know of any plans to build one. Um, build one, but I'm hoping that eventually um, we will find us a veterans' home in the greater Columbus area, and I already know that we can fill it.
0: As we've mentioned, you've devoted your life to being an advocate for veterans. You've given a lot of advice. What advice, and this is is always the final question that I ask, what advice would you give to a veteran or active duty serviceman or woman who might be struggling in making the adjustments, regardless of what those adjustments are?
1: I would want them to know that you're not alone, that there are people out here just like you, and that you can make it. Just give it a day at a time, just like you did when you were serving on active duty, just like you did when you were away from your family members. Just continue to hold your head high and reach out if you need a helping hand. We are here, we love you, and we support you.
0: Dr. Dana Robertson Street, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your continued service. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of marching orders or let us know about a veteran you believe should tell his or her story. Email us at online at com. That's online at com. subject line marching orders. Check us out online at thisweeknews.com and look on our website for a section. It's a pretty new section, thisweeknews.com slash marching orders. We'll eventually have all of our marching orders podcasts there, along with some other news and features related to the military. If you're on social media, look for us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Everything is at This Week News. That's at This Week News. For This Week Community News, I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.